Hi, this is Kim, and welcome back to Weber County's Greatest Generation. Today's story could be taken from our headlines. It's about domestic violence and murder and the impact it had on two Weber County families who had sons in World War II. Even with everything going on, there's still tragic headlines at home, and that goes for the Samuel and Julia Nelson family who lived on 3856 Harrison Boulevard. The eldest of four children, their son Del was born on August 21st, 1924, and he attended Weber County Schools and also Weber County High School. He was inducted into the Army on May 2nd, 1943, and departed from Salt Lake City. So for my listeners who are not local, July 24th is considered Pioneer Day, and on July 24th, 1847, the Mormon pioneers came into the Salt Lake Valley. So it is a huge event, even now, um, with parades and rodeos and a lot of celebrations. On Friday, July 23rd of 1943, Ogden was hot with 85 to 90 degree temperatures, and the war news was good. The Allies had just captured Palermo, the capital of Sicily, and the big local news in Ogden was the Pioneer Days Rodeo. So in Ogden, that entails a week of rodeo events with a queen contest and a major parade. The Standard Examiner reported on it that Friday morning. Ogden's second wartime Pioneer Day celebration opened Thursday night at the stadium with an elaborate display of color which brought cowboy lore very close to thousands of Utah people once again. With the initial evening of rodeo events, the way was paid for the climax of the 1943 celebration, the Mammoth Pioneer Days War Bond Parade. It will happen Saturday morning at 10 a.m., which will be, beyond doubt, the most important review of military might ever witnessed. The rodeo stands for opening night, and this would have been Thursday the 22nd, were filled with an estimated 12,000 people, natives and newcomers, many of them who were witnessing a genuine rodeo for the very first time. The rodeo grounds in Ogden were only a few blocks from where several families were sitting out in their backyards. They could probably hear the loudspeaker of the rodeo grounds describing what was happening inside of the arena, and no one could be prepared for what was going to happen that night. On the morning of July 24, 1943, the Standard Examiner headline read, Midnight Gunman Slays Five in Ogden. The lower headlines read, Judge Truman Among Victims, Then Killer Is Seized. And then another smaller headline underneath said, Gun Victims Include Sam Nelson, Mrs. T. Burton of Rigby, Idaho, Bessie Brooks, and Jane Stoffer. Second District Judge Louis B. Truman, 52, was shot and killed together with four other persons and two are in the D hospital today, recovering from gunshot wounds. The wounds happened when Austin Cox, 38, 133 Willow, ran amok Friday night with a 12-gauge shotgun. The dead besides Judge Truman are Sam Nelson, 49, 38, 56 Harrison, Bessie Brooks, 2238 Lincoln, about 30, Jane Stoffer, 29, and Mrs. T. Burton of Rigby, Idaho, all of 2240 Lincoln. The injured are T. Burt Stoffer, 35, and Del Brooks, 29, of 2238 Lincoln. Stoffer is in critical condition with severe head and shoulder wounds. Brooks has a hand wound. The killer who admitted the shootings to police officers was overpowered at the police station after he had discharged his shotgun narrowly missing several officers there at the time. 
Investigation was continuing today by police officers while Cox remained in jail awaiting the file of formal charges of first-degree murder. The only clue police had obtained early this morning regarding the possible motive was the fact that Cox's wife had obtained a divorce in February from Judge Lewis Trimlin's court. He had expressed resentment over the decision regarding her alimony. She also told them that Austin Cox had been found guilty of battery in a complaint she filed. She reported that he had beat her and threatened to cut her tongue out. So far as officers have been able to learn, the four victims of the shooting at 2240 Lincoln were strangers to Cox and had no connection with whatever domestic difficulties he may have had. Cox told Chief of Police Ryle Seymour that someone had called him and told him his former wife was at an address on Lincoln Avenue, presumably the address at which the shooting occurred. Wanda Mae Carter Cox, his ex-wife, when interviewed by telephone this morning at her home in Porterville near Morgan, said she had not seen Cox or heard from him since the divorce was granted in February and that Cox had always paid his alimony promptly. Police Lieutenant E.L. Shaw reported that when officers answered the call to 2240 Lincoln, they found T. Burt Stauffer badly wounded on the rear porch of the home. Jane Stauffer, his wife, and her mother, Mrs. T. Burton, were lying dead nearby, and their four-year-old daughter was hiding behind a washing machine. Samuel Nelson was shot in the backyard of a house at 23922nd, where he was visiting relatives. Mrs. Brooks was found dead in front of the house at 2240 Lincoln. Reconstructing the course of the killer's actions, police believe he left the Stauffer home and drove directly to the Truman residence, where he shot Judge Truman as he stood at an upstairs window of his house. Chief of Police Moore, Police Captain C.K. Keeter, and Lieutenant E.L. Shaw answered the call to the Truman residence. They found Mrs. Truman sitting beside the body of her husband on the floor of their bedroom. Judge Truman was dead, having received the full blast of the shotgun charge in the upper body and face. The officers reported that Mrs. Truman related that she and Judge Truman had just retired for the night when they heard a loud noise from the rear of the house. They arose and Judge Truman turned on a small hall light just outside the bedroom. They both then walked to the bedroom window facing the sidewalk. There was a man there and Judge Truman called to him asking what he was doing there, but received no answer. Then Mrs. Truman called to the man and told him to leave. At that time, she heard the report of a gun and the judge fell to the floor. The investigation disclosed that Cox had fired the first shot through the kitchen window on the east side of the house. Empty 12-gauge shotgun shells were found under the kitchen window and in the front of the house and another on the kitchen floor. The window in the bedroom was shattered as well as part of the wall and the ceiling. Directly after the second shot, Dr. F.K. Bartlett of 2703 Hill Drive looked out of his bedroom window and saw a shabby car driving slowly down 27th toward the city from the direction of the Truman home. Dr. Bartlett told officers he could see one person in the car, which answered the description of the car later found parked at the city county building and registered in Cox's name. In the police station, Cox thrust himself into the door in the entryway on the west side of the building, placed a shell in the chamber of his shotgun, and prepared to fire into the captain's office, where Officer Fred Gill, radio technician Fred D. Thompson, and Wilson Cliff, Salt Lake Tribune reporter, were sitting. Thompson saw and warned the others and thrust the door shut. Meantime, Cox's attention was diverted and he fired the shot into the northeast corner of the police reception office. He was then overpowered by Lieutenant John A. Smith and Sergeant Frank Schneider 
attached to the U.S. Provost Marshal's office who happened to be standing near the door. The officers related that he struggled against capture and in his cell later showed the marks of the effort to subdue him. Visited later in his cell by Chief Moore, Cox pleaded to be shot. Chief Moore said he freely admitted to shooting Judge Truman, but was vague as to who else he had shot. Sergeant Snyder related to officers that he and Lieutenant Smith were in the reception office when Cox entered with the gun. His shot narrowly missed them. Lieutenant Smith grappled with him and knocked him down. Mrs. Sam Harris of 2242 Lincoln, living in the house adjoining the Stoffer home, told police officers she was sitting on her front porch when she heard several shots and heard screams. She saw a man standing on the front porch of the Stoffer home directly in the rear of her house. She called out to the man saying, What is the trouble, Mr. Stoffer? And the man said, So you want some too, and turned the gun in her direction. Mrs. Harris slammed the door shut and removed herself from sight. So you can imagine the chaos that's going on now. The rodeo's just letting out. You have a shooting <clears throat> down close to Wall, and you have another one about 15 blocks east above Harrison. So it looks like the Ogden had only two ambulances. The paper goes on to report that a police call was made for an ambulance to remove T. Burt Stoffer to the hospital, but the ambulance did not arrive. It was finally necessary to obtain the emergency ambulance from the Ogden Stadium, where a record crowd was watching the closing acts of the second night of the Pioneer Days Rodeo, unaware of the quintuple tragedy in the city. So this ambulance that had been parked inside the gates now had to maneuver itself to get out in order to get uh, Mr. Stoffer to the hospital. The news of the tragedy spread quickly among the spectators at the Pioneer Days Rodeo, and a large crowd quickly gathered in the neighborhood at the House of Murder on Lincoln Avenue and at Judge Truman's home on 27th. News of the tragedy brought expressions of horror and disbelief among citizens today. Officers believe the shootings to be the most terrible tragedy of its kind in the history of Ogden, unless a connection is found between the Stuffer family and Cox to establish a motive for his attack upon them. It is presumed that all of his victims were completely innocent. And that's what it turned out to be. Cox believing his wife was there, although there was no connection between her and the house on Lincoln, killed the four victims. Judge Truman had handled his divorce. Going back to the standard examiner, Samuel Lewis Nelson, 3856 Harrison, who was killed last night, was born November 29, 1893, in New England, Pennsylvania, the son of Victor Ann and Eliza Braddock Nelson. As a boy, he worked in the coal mines of Pennsylvania and in 1914 came with his family to Salt Lake City. He joined the Army in the First World War in 1917 and saw active duty overseas until the armistice and was mustered out in 1919. While he was gone, the family moved to Ogden, which has been his home ever since. He married Julia Buse, June 28, 1922, in the Salt Lake Temple. She survives him. He was a member of the LDS Church and is an elder in the 14th Ward. Surviving besides his wife are sons Private Delby Nelson of Fort Knox, Kentucky, and Ray B. Nelson, two daughters Ruth and Lugene, and his mother, Mrs. Eliza B. Peck, all of Ogden. Funeral services will be announced by the altarist Marchuary upon receipt of word from his son who is in the Army. On July 27th, an article read, Services for Samuel Lewis Nelson, 49, of 3856 Harrison, one of the five persons killed by Austin Cox Jr. in a shooting spree Friday night, will be conducted Wednesday at 2 p.m. in the LDS 
Ward 14th Chapel by Bishop Alvi Kramer. Friends may call at the family home today after 6 p.m. and Wednesday prior to the services. Altaris Mortuary will direct burial in the Ogden City Cemetery. I wasn't able to find out if Private Nelson was able to come home for the funeral or not. On October 27, 1943, there's an article that says, Among the class of soldier students who reported to the Armored School at Fort Knox, Kentucky to take a special course in the wheeled vehicle department is Private Del B. Nelson, son of Mrs. Julia B. Nelson of 3856 Harrison in Ogden. And then on January 10, 1944, graduation, Private Delby Nelson, son of Mrs. Julia Nelson, was among the recent graduates from a 10-week course in maintenance and repair at the Armored School at Fort Knox, Kentucky. Private Nelson was assigned to Company A of the 526th Armored Infantry Battalion. The 526 took part in the Normandy invasion as well as um, fighting through France. In late October of 1944, while in Belgium, the 526 was attached to an intelligence organization called the T-Force. It had been authorized by General Eisenhower soon after D-Day. The T-Force was designed to rush into captured towns and seize intelligence information and German personnel. December 17, 1944 was the first attack in what would come to be known as the Battle of the Bulge. This was Hitler's last-ditch effort to win the war. And this is just the Reader's Digest version of the battle, which is made up of thousands of Allied and German troops and would last for several weeks. On that first night, the 526th convoy headed to blunt the German attack. A task force comprised of Company A and a platoon from another battalion in T-Force, under the command of Major Paul J. Solos, was sent to Stavelot. The remaining battalion under Lieutenant Colonel Carlisle B. Irwin was ordered to defend Malmody, which was about four and a half miles away. As Company B entered Malmody, some soldiers heard the church bells playing Yankee Doodle Dandy to warn the Germans the Americans were coming. So this is going to be a famous event in the Battle of the Bulge. As an American truck convoy moving south from Malmody encountered the Germans, they left their tanks and took cover in hills and ditches. About two hours later, dazed survivors from the battle recalled that the Americans who had been rounded up were marched into a field where at a signal they were shot down by machine gun and pistol fire. A few escaped by feigning death, but the wounded who moved or screamed were sought out and shot through the head. At least 86 Americans were massacred that day. Captain Charles Mitchell recorded that on that night, Major Solis had ordered him to establish a roadblock on the south side of the river Amblave. He says the pitch black night and the unfamiliar terrain in a strange town made strategy and communication exceedingly difficult. Two squads crossed the river and proceeded up the other side about a half mile. At that point, they stopped and radioed that movement could be heard in the distance. I ordered them to return to the bridge. One of my half-tracks returned safely across the bridge. I later learned that the Germans had occupied the houses on the south side of the river before our arrival and wrecked the second tape by stretching a cable across the road. Shortly after this, the German attack began in earnest with mortars and other artillery pelting the town. The German infantry started across the bridge. They were repulsed several times with our rifle, mortar, and machine gun fire, and they fell back. 
Noticing a tank approaching the bridge, I alerted Sergeant Smith of the anti-tank squad. We watched it as it slowly crossed the bridge. Just as it left the bridge, my anti-tank gun fired, but it unfortunately caused no damage. The tank overran our gun crew position and the German infantry followed close behind. Now the Germans were in and my company was in big trouble. Upon receiving a message from battalion headquarters to evacuate Stavalot and set a new position on higher ground, I began to try and gather my troops for departure. The confusion was tremendous and we were under constant shelling. We had progressed approximately a mile when we came to a huge gasoline dump. Realizing the additional fuel would be a boon to the German troops, Lieutenant Wilwright and I tried to destroy it by setting fire to it. Since we could hear two German tanks laboring up behind us, we needed to take immediate action. We first deployed men on either side of the road and set up the 54mm AT guns in the woods. We then fired a machine gun into the gasoline, which was stacked in five-gallon containers on the left side of the road as far as the eye could see. It did not ignite and the German tanks were now in sight. One of the men ran to the dump, quickly opened a can of the fuel and ran with it to our position, spilling it as he ran. A lighted match provided the necessary spark to set the dump on fire. The first tank saw the fire and turned around and the second tank followed. Sometime later, hearing the activity in the woods behind us, we feared we were surrounded by German troops. Frantically, we tried to change our position until one of the men shouted, They're American. It was the 1st Battalion, 117th Regiment of the 30th Infantry Division, under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Robert E. Franklin, and Major Solis was accompanying these troops. Since I was there, I know this unit, Company A of the 526th Armored Infantry Battalion, conducted itself in a most courageous and fearless manner. I feel the men's attention to orders and their actions as a result of those orders were exemplary. These brave men performed above and beyond in the line of duty. They disregarded the risk of injury and death in order to accomplish their purpose. For those who died, we can only say to their families that they died in a most courageous effort to fulfill their duties as American soldiers. Private Dale Buse Nelson was one of those who died on December 18th. His medical record shows he died of a bullet to the thorax. On January 13, 1945, American forces recaptured the site where the Malmedy massacre occurred. The cold had preserved the scene well, and the bodies were recovered on January 14, 1945. There is now a memorial there that bears the names of the murdered soldiers. At the end of the war, the culprits were tried at the Dachau trials held in May and June of 1946. More than 70 Germans were tried for war crimes through the Battle of the Bulge and pronounced 43 death sentences, but none of those were actually carried out. On June 8, 1945, there was an article in the newspaper, 14th Ward Will Hold Rights. Memorial services for Private Delby Nelson will be held Sunday, June 10th at 3.30 p.m. in the LDS 14th Ward Chapel at 3750 Adams. Private Nelson was killed in action at Stavlot on December 18, 1944. Private Nelson was born in Ogden on August 21, 1924, a son of Samuel L. and Julia Buse Nelson. He attended Weber High School prior to entering the Army on May 8, 1943. He received his training at Fort Knox, Kentucky. 
He left for overseas duty in March of 1944 and stationed in England for two months. He served in France and Belgium with the 526th Armored Infantry Battalion, 12th Army. The family requests no flowers. At the end of the war, the Nelson family requested that his body be returned to Ogden. On December 6, 1947, there was an article in the newspaper. Graveside Military Services for Private Dalbus Nelson, 20, son of Mrs. Julia Nelson and the late Samuel L. Nelson of 3856 Harrison Boulevard, will be conducted Monday at 2 p.m. at the grave in the Ogden City Cemetery by Bishop Farrell Carter of the LDS 34th Ward. Military honors will be accorded by the Ogden Post of the Veterans of Foreign Wars. Private Nelson was killed in action in Europe during the Battle of the Bulge. The cortege will lead the Altarist Marchuary Monday at 1.45 p.m. Interment will be directed by the Marchuary. Private Nelson's father, Samuel L. Nelson, was killed by Austin Cox, Jr. on July 23, 1943. Surviving are his mother, a brother, and two sisters, Ray, Ruth, and Lugene Nelson of Ogden, and a grandmother, Mrs. Eliza Peck of Salt Lake City. So as I was finishing researching this story, at the end I said I, I found a surprise. I found this article, Bessie Allison Blakely Brooks, 2238 Lincoln, one of the five persons who died from gun wounds inflicted by Austin Cox, 38, in a shooting spree Friday evening, was a daughter of Matthew Carl and artist Simpson Blakely. She was born October 16, 1913, and was married here to F. Dell Brooks on July 6, 1935. She was educated in Ogden schools and was a member of the LDS Church and active as a Sunday school teacher. Surviving are her husband, one son, Kent Blakely Brooks, her parents, Olive Ogden, and one brother, Lieutenant Robert Blakely, who was recently reported as missing in action in the Africa campaign. I recently did a podcast about Lieutenant Blakely, podcast number 17. He was a pilot in the North Africa War, and he had been shot down on April 19, 1943. Although he was officially declared as missing in action, he was later declared as killed in action on that day. He died three months before his sister Bessie was shot and killed on July 24th. Cox was tried and found guilty by a jury of nine men and three women in Weber County on September 4, 1943. He was executed by firing squad on June 19, 1944. So this is a story of tragedy um, just beyond belief. In later reports, this will be one of the first crimes that earned the term mass murder. So thanks for joining. I'm always amazed at the way the stories turn out. There's always surprises and also amazed at the amount of information that is out there where you can find so much about the individual battles and people who wrote about them after, after they were over. So remember the podcast is available on iTunes and on my Facebook page, Weber County's Greatest Generation. Thanks for joining.